Good morning. Welcome. Happy Easter. Let's all stand and celebrate. We're going to sing Crown Him with Many Crowns this morning. Oh, 
song but before we do I want to add my welcome to this morning so welcome everybody I know we got going right off the rip we wanted to get it all in this morning we want to celebrate our risen Savior and we're so excited that you all have come to join us this morning thank you for everybody who's uh, all of our members that are here and those that may not be we're so thankful that you're with us this morning all of our guests um, and we are going to have a great celebratory time a time of challenge a time of uh, getting in the word, and I'm just excited to be with you all this morning. So 
before we sing our next song before the throne of God above, I want to read you a passage from a sermon. Some of you may know Alistair Beck. Uh, this is from his sermon. I want to read it. It sets up our song well, so if you pay attention, and we'll sing together right after that. And you get a little break. You get to sit for a second. Kind of, I'm sweating up here already, so. All right. Here's what he says. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we can very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So to go to the question, if you were to die tonight and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I'm this, because I'm continuing. Friends, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. I can't wait to find that guy one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because before you were cussing the guy out with a friend, you've never been in a Bible study. You've never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And yet, you made it. How'd you make it? I mean, that's what the angel must have thought, you know? Hey, what are you doing here? And the guy says, I, I don't know. Um, okay, well, we have a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the guy says, I've never heard of it in my life. And he says, okay, well, okay, all right. I mean, you're here, so what about the doctrine of Scripture? And the guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, okay, on what basis are you here? And the thief on the cross said, the man on the middle cross said that I can come. Amen. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself every day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then only give lip service to its efficacy while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject, abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. It's only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out. And I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We're not saved as a result of our professions, but we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. Amen to that. Let's stand together and sing before the throne of God above.
Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin, because of sin the Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God has judged. The great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood, my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior my God, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. You may be seated. Let's bow together before the Lord in prayer. Father, we are before you on this holiest of holy days, the holiday we call Easter. We say with your people located throughout your world, He is risen, He is risen indeed. This holy week represents the pivotal events in all of human history, the death, the burial, the resurrection of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that these events happened, that they truly happened. God the Son did come to earth as man in obedience to your will, Father. He did live a perfect, sinless life and was thereby qualified to be our substitute in death, paying the penalty of our sin. He really did rise on the third day. And now is the risen and ascended Lord who will return and set all things right in the world that He made and He owns by right of creation and redemption. We thank You that these are not just abstract truths for us, but they are vital living truths because the benefits of the life and death and lordship of Jesus are applied to those who believe. We're before You as those who believe, the undeserving yet grateful recipients of Your unfathomable grace. And so we've gathered to praise You, and we ask that you will be pleased as we do, and that you will accept the sacrifice of praise that we offer, and that you'll be honored in all we do today. It's in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.
like to add my welcome to that you've already received this morning. We're glad that you could be here with us this morning to worship the Lord on this special Resurrection Sunday. And I want to especially welcome any of you who are our guests here this morning. We're glad that you could be here with us. We want to make it easy for you get, to get to know us. And so we've set up a keyword, CBC Connect, that you can text to the number 97000. Just text that word to that number, and you'll get a link back to some shortcuts to some of the announcements you'll hear me make this morning, and as well our connection card. And that connection card has all kinds of information on it about our church, check boxes for you to let us know what you'd like to know more about, and even a space for you to write a question if you have a question for us. So please use that connection card to uh, get to know us better. We'll reach out, we'll follow up with you and uh, answer any questions you have. And then uh, we're just glad that you'd like, that you'd be here with us to worship the Lord this morning. And uh, one last thing for you, if you're a guest this morning, do stop by our welcome desk just outside in the lobby area before you leave today. We have a gift we'd like to give you to say thanks for being with us. So we've paused in our worship through singing this morning to do what we call here at CBC worship through giving. We believe that everything that we have comes to us from the hand of God, and he entrusts these things to us for the mission that he's given us. And so um, we set aside a portion of all that he's entrusted to us each week to devote to the work of the ministry here at CBC. Uh, Guests that I spoke to a moment ago, we didn't invite you to ask you for money, so please don't feel obligated as the the plate goes by. Uh, Just let that pass. We're glad that you'd just be here with us to worship this morning. But our ushers are going to come forward now and receive our morning offering. And as they do that, I'm going to run through some announcements, some things that are coming up here at CBC. So may the Lord bless you as you give. And uh, just a reminder, these are not all of the things happening at CBC, these announcements, but uh, we've got a full calendar at cbctrenton.com. But here are some key highlights for you. Uh, Just a note to our schedule today, our community groups normally meet on the first and third Sunday evenings, and those are off tonight in observance observance of Easter. Uh, We have a couple's game night coming up this Friday night at 7 p.m., so we want you to get your significant other, get your favorite board game, and uh, as well, your favorite game night snack. I've been failing to point that one out. We want to have some good snacks there for that as well. So remember to bring your favorite game night snack and then head on over here to the ministry center. And we're going to be meeting here for a fun night of games and fellowship. And uh, we'll have a few organized games at the beginning of the night and then plenty of time to play your favorite games with, with a few friends as well. So we hope to see you there this Friday night at 7 p.m. Next Sunday, in our second hour, we're having just one service today, but normally we have two services, one at 9.30 for worship and one we call Discovering God at uh, 11.15. And uh, we'll be starting a new series in that second hour next week called Making Peace, How to Overcome Conflict. Uh, God desires that we have peace with Him and with each other, and yet many of our relationships are characterized by hostility, resentment, and anger. And so we'll be talking about how we can restore peace to broken relationships. So please plan to join us right here at 11.15 for Making Peace next Sunday. Also, we have flyers on the welcome desk if you'd like to take some of those to invite friends, family, acquaintances that you think might be interested as well. And then next Sunday afternoon at 2.30 via Zoom, we'll be having our next quarterly family meeting. This is Uh, what's otherwise known as a church business meeting, Uh, but we'll be having that at 2.30, and members, please watch your email for the meeting link that we'll be sending out the day before that, so next Saturday. Our next Newcomers Brunch is just three weeks away, Saturday, May 7th, and this is a great opportunity if you're new around CBC, and uh, new around CBC as in haven't attended a Newcomers Brunch yet, so you might have been here for a while, but 
came after we had our last newcomer's brunch. Uh, this is a great time for you to get to know some of the leadership of CBC uh, over brunch at the Browns' home. And so uh, no matter how long you've been here, if you've never been to one of these, please consider signing up for that. Look for the banner that you see on the screen there on our church website. Click it and you can reserve your spot for the newcomer's brunch. And then finally, our family camp, church family camp, is June 26th through 30th. It's a little ways out still, not too far, but we just want to remind you because you do have to sign up to reserve your spot for that, and space is limited. We'll be going to Mackinac Mill Creek as we have in years past, and I uh, encourage you, if you've, uh, if you've not been to this before, consider signing up. Talk to some folks who've been. It'll be a great time, and uh, as I said, register to reserve your spot for that. Any of these items, if you need to know more about them, just want more information, you can text CBC Connect to 97000, and we'll get that information to you want to turn our attention now to God's Word and our scripture reading for this morning, which is found in 1 Corinthians, and I'll be reading verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must, must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory." Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Today is Easter Sunday, and uh, we're commemorating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. And we all consider the resurrection to be a wonderful thing, to be good news, because it obviously means death has no hold on us who are in Christ. But the Bible speaks of the death of Jesus in positive terms, too. We don't normally think of death as a good thing, much less the, the murder of an innocent, completely innocent man. But we call the day Jesus died Good Friday. So for anyone who's a, not a Christian, they may be wondering what's so good about Good Friday. Before we resume our worship through singing, we'll have a video addressing that question.
and saw it all. Our rebellion, our guilt, our shame, erasing the very notion of reconciling us with God. Our sin and our debt, overcoming Jesus. Here is our King, obliterated. The enemy laughing, his plans unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of freedom rising. Now God's people are utterly broken. Behold the chains of mortality. Yes, this is what is true. We had heard the stories of old. The lost are found, the blind can see, the weak are made strong. But now we are witnesses to this reality. God is dead. We'd almost believed there is a way of redemption. There is a life of fulfillment. There is a peace beyond understanding. Now we know better. For us, we can say that God is encapsulated in this one realization. The single greatest sacrifice in human history is finished. How clearly we can see it. So what's so good about Good Friday? Just one thing, that the blood of Jesus can reverse the curse of sin and raise the dead to life. How clearly we can see it is finished. The single greatest sacrifice in human history encapsulated in this one realization. We can say that God is for us. Now we know better. There is a peace beyond understanding. There is a life of fulfillment. There is a way of redemption. We had almost believed God is dead, but now we are witnesses to this reality. The weak are made strong, the blind can see, the lost are found. We had heard the stories of old, yes, this is what is true. The chains of mortality utterly broken, behold freedom rising. Now God's people are unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of the enemy laughing, his plans obliterated. Here is our King, Jesus overcoming our sin and our debt, reconciling us with God, erasing the very notion of our rebellion, our guilt, our shame. Heaven watched and saw it all, the naked humiliation, the inhuman flogging, the brutal beating, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. We told ourselves that we were in control. All along, these were the plans firmly in the hands of God. Our sin drove the nails, our sin stopped his heart, and yet this is the incredible part of it. He never stopped loving us. The bright light of our future all in one moment, bringing death to death by way of a cross. This is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, an innocent man putting to an end the wrongdoing of all humanity. How can one describe such a day? Good Friday. Let's all stand together and sing.
my Savior's love. Tell my 
How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory. Spoken, I am forgiven. The King of Kings calls me His own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living home. Salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe out of the silence. The roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Let's sing that again. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your very body began to breathe out of the silence. The Hallelujah, death has 
I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. We want everybody to have a Bible, and so these brothers have some. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll give one of those to you. And I say give because it is our gift to you. Keep that Bible and bring it back with you each Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. And it's marked for you at Acts chapter 1. Most of us are familiar with the standard of proof in our legal system of beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, that's for criminal conviction. But the standard of proof is different, and it's lower for a grand jury to decide whether to indict and to proceed to a criminal trial in the first place. That standard is merely probable cause. That is, there is probable cause to believe a crime has been committed and so a trial is to be had to determine whether, indeed, it did happen beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's for criminal offenses. For civil actions, where one party might file suit against another in court over something like a breach of a, a contract, the standard is yet something else. It's a preponderance of the evidence. That is, it's more likely than not that something occurred in a way that's claimed by the, the plaintiff. Now, okay, I have just exhausted my knowledge of our legal system in under two minutes. But I've mentioned it because today we celebrate an event that Christians claim happened 2,000 years ago, but which, like all claims, whether legal or philosophical or religious, requires proof and an argument to present that proof. But whether that proof satisfies one depends on their standard. What would you need to convince you that Jesus is alive? And whatever that is, that is your standard of proof. We can create our own standards based on what we think is possible or probable, and in turn, whether we'll accept it. When it comes to the claim that Jesus has been raised, the stakes for all of us are at their very highest, because if He is, then it says something profound about who He is and his right to make claims on your life and mine. And therefore, it's tempting in the extreme for us to create a standard that rules out certain possibilities like the resurrection, like whether it can be scientifically proven. You see, whether you accept the proof very much depends on what you allow as proof. The Bible teaches that we come to the evidence with a prejudice against God's proof because it does not fit what we want to believe. The late Christian apologist John Warwick Montgomery made that point when he told the following, once upon a time there was a man who thought he was dead. His concerned wife and friend sent him to the friendly neighborhood psychiatrist. The psychiatrist determined to cure him by convincing him of one fact that contradicted his belief that he was dead. The psychiatrist decided to use the simple truth that dead men do not believe. He put his patient to work, reading medical texts, observing autopsies, and so on. After weeks of effort, the patient finally said, all right, all right, you've convinced me dead men do not bleed, whereupon the psychiatrist stuck him in the arm with a needle and the blood flowed. The man looked down 
and with a contorted ashen face said, I guess dead men do bleed. You see, the facts for this so-called dead man were not convincing because he would not be convinced. The problem was not with the proof, but with him. And the doctor and the patient were each looking at the same fact, the flow of blood, but their operating worldviews caused them to come to different conclusions as to what that evidence meant. In verse 3 of Acts chapter 1, here's what the Bible says. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. But in order to be convinced by the proofs, we need a change in perspective that allows the proofs to be convincing. Let's pray now and ask God to help us as we look at that. Our Father, we thank You now again for gathering us and allowing us to be in Your presence with Your book before us. And on this very special day where we celebrate the fact of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask You, O Lord, to do what only You can do. Convince the heart of those who are here of the convincing proofs that You have provided. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as you came in today, as each week, you should have received an outline for our message. And I say, first of all, in that outline, that God has established the resurrection with proof. Again, verse 3 says, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. After Jesus was crucified, after his suffering, he rose from the dead and he showed himself to his first followers in convincing ways. For example, in the Gospel of John, near the end of that Gospel, recording the life and ministry of Jesus, and then His death, and then His resurrection, here's what it says, "'On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them.'" Just a few days earlier, they had seen Him crucified, but now He's standing among them alive in a body that they can recognize but a body that's been changed so that he can come into rooms without, notice, unlocking the doors. Now that passage is from the Gospel of John, but Luke records the same incident with some additional detail. Luke tells us while they were still talking about his death, and they're mourning his death, and they're bewildered at all that's happened. Jesus Himself stood among them, and He said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at My hands and My feet. It is I Myself. Touch Me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And so He has a, a real body, one fitted for its new purpose, as He will soon ascend back to heaven from which He came, but he's not a ghost, but rather a living, breathing man as he was before the crucifixion. And he gave proof of that to them. And to underscore that it's really him and really his resurrected real body, the Bible goes on to say in that passage, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, just <laughs> they're messed up at this point. 
I mean, they're bewildered, and then Jesus appears, and there's this joy, but really, can it be true? And it's too good to be true. And so it says they still didn't believe because of joy and amazement. And he asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. The Bible tells us in the verse that I ask you to turn to in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 that he did this over a 40-day period, showing himself alive for nearly six weeks after being crucified. But that was what he did for them. We weren't there. So what does that have to do with us? Well, I invite you to consider the fact that the proofs that they were given moved them to take actions that constitute proofs for us. Even the all-too-well-known atheist Bart Ehrman agrees. He says this, It is indisputable that some of the followers of Jesus came to think He had been raised from the dead and something had to have happened to make them think so. Now, that something that had to have happened was that He rose from the dead. But Ehrman recognizes that people who lived at that time came to believe in the resurrection, but there must be, in his mind, some other explanation as to why. But notice the actions of those early Christians, notice the actions that they took based on being convinced that Jesus was alive and that affect us today. The first one I say in your outline is this, that we're here on Sunday. Now, most of you know that the Holy Day in Judaism, practiced for 15 centuries before Jesus came, was Saturday, or the seventh day of the week. Devout Jews, to this day, still observe the Sabbath on the seventh day, on Saturday. But something happened in the first century, 2,000 years ago, that caused the radical change from Saturday, the seventh day, to Sunday, the first day of the week. Perhaps you noticed in one of the passages that I displayed, it actually pointed to that day. Again, John chapter 20. On the evening of that notice, first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors are locked for fear. Jesus came and stood among them. Why were they gathered? Why did Jesus appear on that first day of the week? Because the Bible tells us, as we will see, that's the day that he rose from the grave. In fact, all of the four of the gospel writers say this very thing about the first day of the week, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's what Matthew says, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb, and angels said to the women, you are looking for Jesus who was crucified, he is not here, he is risen, just as he said. Mark, likewise. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body very early, again, on the first day of the week. Don't be alarmed, the angel said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Luke as well. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And then John, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. 
Now, in the fourth century, a church council met at a place called Nicaea and declared Sunday to be the official day of worship for Christians. And so sometimes you will hear folks say, we still really should be worshiping on Saturday since it was, after all, just some church council that made Sunday the official day. But the truth is, hundreds of years before that, Christians had already started worshiping on Sunday. And in fact, immediately during that 40-day period that Jesus showed Himself alive and immediately thereafter. And so you have, for example, in the Bible, the Apostle Paul writing to a church in a city called Corinth, and he tells them this, now about the collection, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Collections are to be made on the day of worship, which had now changed to the first day of the week. Sunday came to be called the Lord's Day in the first century, and it's been the day of worship for Christians ever since. The New Testament and early centuries of the church saw a very simple form of worship and of church government. We have descriptions about that from a second century writer named Justin Martyr and a manual of church life called the Didache. That's Greek for the teaching of the twelve apostles. It says this, the service which was held on the day of the sun, the service held on the day of the sun on Sunday, started with the reading of the, quote, memoirs of the apostles, that would be our New Testament, or the writings of the prophets, that would be your Old Testament, for a period as long as time permits, an exhortation or a homily based on the reading was then given by, and this is the title, the president, I guess that would be me, the president. The congregation stood for prayer. They took up a collection and the meeting was dismissed and the people made their way to their homes. But notice they met on Sunday, the first day of the week. Yes, indeed, something radical happened on that first Easter. God has established the resurrection with proof, including the variety of witnesses that we have to the resurrection, as I say in your outline. Those who deny the reality of the resurrection have to deal with the fact that the witnesses to it were not just a handful, but many, many people from different backgrounds. So it cannot be dismissed as some have attempted to do as an isolated occurrence where a group was gathered and in their grief they were hallucinating about what really happened. There's a variety of witnesses in Scripture. And I have four characteristics of those witnesses for you in your outline. The first is this, they are numerous. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 says that the resurrected Jesus made appearances for nearly six weeks. The Greek text actually reads, quote, through 40 days. And that affirms that though He was not with them continuously, He did appear in their presence at intervals. Although this is by no means exhaustive, the most extensive summary of those appearances is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what it says. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And then Paul, who wrote this, notes this, most of whom are still living, implying that you could go ask them though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. There's a variety of witnesses in Scripture, and they are, they are numerous, and I say they are unlikely. They are unlikely. 
Did you notice who it was that discovered that the Lord had been raised? It was the women. And in the patriarchal culture of that day, women were considered unworthy and unreliable witnesses, so if the story were fabricated, it would not have them being the first and most courageous. In fact, one scholar has said, most scholars think that the women's discovery of the empty tomb is probably historical because any later legendary account would likely make male disciples discover the empty tomb rather than women who were not regarded as credible witnesses in Jewish society, and they occupied a lower rung than men in a patriarchal society. This scholarly conviction is the result of the criterion of embarrassment. According to that criterion, events or sayings in the life of Jesus, which would be embarrassing or counterproductive for the early Christian community, are more likely to be historical than they would otherwise have been. Examples of the criterion of embarrassment at work include things like Peter's denial of Jesus. It's an embarrassment, but it's included because it's true. Similarly, a a legendary story of women being the chief witnesses to so important a fact as Jesus' empty tomb is not likely to have arisen if this is legend. The variety of witnesses are numerous. They're unlikely in many cases as witnesses, and they are reluctant witnesses. Some might say that the first followers of Jesus were looking for Him to be raised, and So they were inclined to believe what they were already disposed to believe, but that's not the case. Scholar Michael Kruger says this, here it might be helpful to know that Jesus was not the first would-be Messiah to be killed by the Romans. In fact, even in the same era, there were two other potential Messiahs. He gives the names, Simon Bar-Giora and Simeon Bar-Kashba. After they both were killed by the Romans, the same thing happened in both cases. Their messianic movement came to an abrupt and a tragic end. In other words, the historical record shows that the death of the would-be Messiah is so counterintuitive to their messianic expectations of the day that movements can never recover from that death. In the minds of first century Jews, the death of the would-be Messiah shows that He was definitely not the Messiah. In fact, Jesus' own disciples seemed to understand this. When Jesus died, they didn't think, well, maybe He's the Messiah after all. No, you find them utterly defeated. They're hiding in shame. This defeated outlook was part of why Jesus showed Himself to them alive for so long and in so many different circumstances. One commentator said the apostles needed the confidence to proclaim Christ's message even if it cost their lives. They could, hardly, they could hardly have been enthusiastic about proclaiming and facing martyrdom for a dead Christ. They needed to know that He was alive and would fulfill His promise of the kingdom to secure the necessary confidence. Jesus presented Himself alive after His suffering, offering them many convincing proofs. And so amazingly, something changed. Even though Jesus was killed by the Romans, like all the other would-be messiahs, His movement didn't end. It grew. It exploded. And these same followers of Jesus began to boldly proclaim that He was Lord and Messiah. And that requires a sufficient and serious explanation. 
The variety of witnesses that Scripture portrays are numerous. They're unlikely. They were reluctant, and I say, convinced. They became absolutely convinced. And how do we know this? Because it is the case, dear friends, if you think about it, you think about all of the isms that have existed in human history and all of the false teachings for which people fall, that people can indeed in their own minds believe something to be true, give themselves to it, give themselves to it and even be willing to die for it, though a false cause. People can believe in their minds something's true and be willing to die for it. Hear this, though. People never give their lives for something they know is false. And with regard to the resurrection, that's exactly what it would have had to have been. They're making a claim about having, on numerous occasions, in different kinds of circumstances, seen Him alive, eating with Him, touching Him, and willing to give their lives for it. Hear this, martyrs don't lie. Martyrs don't lie when they know the truth. And you see this example in the life of the great apostle Paul. Paul saw the Lord Jesus alive. That's what made him qualified to be an apostle. We'll be seeing that in the book of Acts in the coming weeks as we go through that book, beginning in chapter 9. And Paul saw, saw Jesus alive. It changed him radically from being a persecutor of Christians and of Christ's church to being the most zealous missionary that the church has ever seen. And he was willing to give his life for that truth. And in fact, did give his life for that truth. In the last chapter of the last letter that we have recorded from the hand of the Apostle Paul, he wrote to his protege Timothy these words. In the presence of God, and notice this, and of Christ Jesus, in the presence of Christ Jesus, this is years after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he saw him alive. He's saying now, Timothy, he's alive. It's in his presence that you minister and I minister. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, Timothy, preach the word. And when he wrote those words, he knew that his time had come, that he was going to be executed because of his faith and ministry on behalf of the Lord Jesus. And so he says these famous words in that same chapter, the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The end result of these appearances was that the apostles became absolutely convinced of the reality of their Lord's physical resurrection. And that assurance gave them the boldness to preach the gospel to the very people who crucified Christ and who were willing and able and actually did execute them as well. The transformation of the apostles from fearful, cowering skeptics to bold, powerful witnesses is a potent proof of the resurrection. God has established the resurrection with proof. And I say, God has explained what it is the resurrection proves. And the first thing that it shows us, for us now, is that we are saved. 
The word saved or salvation is used in the Bible. Many of us use that term to refer to our relationship with the Lord. We will ask, are you saved? When were you saved? What we mean by that is rescue or deliverance by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done, the work He has done about which we heard earlier. Not what we do, but what He has done. And so we are rescued from the penalty and from the power and in the future from the very presence of sin. And it's the resurrection that gives the final proof that indeed we are delivered, rescued, saved. Here's what the Bible says. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, why was His resurrection tied to our justification? I remind you what that term means. It's a term used in the Bible, so let me describe it, define it quickly. But it means to be declared righteous by God the judge. Justification means I, that you are declared to be righteous by God the holy judge, even though we're still sinful. Now, how does that happen? It happens based upon the life of Jesus, the perfectly righteous life of Jesus. And because He lived the life that we were supposed to live, God the Father declared His verdict upon that life of Jesus and raised Him from the dead, showing that He approved of everything that Jesus said and did in His life on earth. The resurrection accredited that. And so that's why the Bible can say He was raised to life for our justification. He was seen to be righteous by God the Father, and His righteousness is declared given to us. In the famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, that many of you are familiar with, it teaches the same thing. It says, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. When it says, by becoming obedient to death, it means that all the way to the point of death, His, his entire life was one of obedience, even to the point of death, and even this kind of death on a cross. And therefore, because of that, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that's the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Theologian Wayne Grudem says this, by raising Christ from the dead, God the Father was in effect saying he approved of Christ's work of suffering and dying for our sins, that his work was completed and that Christ no longer had any need to remain dead. There was no penalty left to pay for sin, no more wrath of God to bear, no more guilt or liability to punish. All had been completely paid for and no guilt remained. In the resurrection, God was saying to Christ, I approve of what you have done and you find favor in my sight. And here's the beautiful thing. That God the Father not only declared that about Jesus, God the Son, but the Bible teaches that we are united with Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. If God raised us up with Him, then by virtue of our union with Christ, God's declaration of approval of Christ, now hear this, is also His declaration of approval of us. When the Father, in essence, said to Christ, all the penalty for sins has been paid, and I find you not guilty, but righteous in my sight, He was thereby making the declaration that would also apply to us once we trust in Christ for salvation. 
And in this way, Christ's resurrection also gave final proof that He had earned our justification. God explains what it is the resurrection proves, that we are saved and that we will be raised. The Bible says this in the most famous chapter in the Bible about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who have died. In Christ, all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. In calling Christ the firstfruits, Paul, who wrote that, uses a metaphor from agriculture to indicate that we will be like Christ, just as the firstfruits or the first taste of the ripening crop show what the rest of the harvest will be like for that crop, so too Christ as the first fruits shows what our resurrections will be like when in God's final harvest He raises us up from the dead and He brings us into His presence. It shows that we will be raised as well. God explains what the resurrection proves, that we are saved, that we will be raised, and lastly, it shows that Jesus is God. The first part of your Bible, what we call the Old Testament, predicted 700 years before the coming of Jesus, the coming of one called the Anointed One, the Messiah, the New Testament word, the Greek word is the Christ. Here's what the prophet Isaiah said 700 years before, the Lord Himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call Him Emmanuel. Now, that name, Emmanuel, what does it mean? When Jesus was born, that same prediction was repeated in the New Testament, but the name Emmanuel was interpreted for us in Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter of your New Testament. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, they will call him Emmanuel, and then Matthew helpfully tells us, which means God with us. So the one to come, the Messiah, would be God come as man. But the resurrection demonstrated that He had the status of God Almighty. After speaking of Jesus' resurrection, this is what's said in Acts chapter 2, the chapter just beyond what I ask you to turn to. Verse 36, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's the conclusion, verse 36, the conclusion to the Apostle Peter's explanation of all that had happened in the weeks just before in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the conclusion of his, his argument. And the title Lord is a reference to God Himself, Yahweh. In fact, the same word is used in this chapter, Acts chapter 2, in verses 21, 34, and 39 of God Himself and now being used of Jesus. It's a strong affirmation of the fact that Jesus is God. And it's attached to His resurrection. And then in Romans chapter 1, you have something similar. Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, He did not become the Son of God at the resurrection, but Jesus' deity, the fact that He is God, was demonstrated in His resurrection. Douglas Moo says this, the pre-existent Son who entered into human experience as the promised Messiah was appointed at the time of the resurrection to a new and more powerful position in relation to the entire world. 
By virtue of his obedience to the will of the Father, the Son attains a new exalted status as Lord. Son of God from eternity, he becomes Son of God in power. And as the writer of Hebrews says, now one who is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him. So it's not a transition from a human Messiah to a divine Son of God, but from the Son as Messiah, now hear this, to the Son as both Messiah and powerful reigning Lord. The fact that Jesus is alive is wonderful news for those who have a relationship with Him as it puts you on the right side of history because it puts you on the right side of the God of all history. That the judgment, it is the living Jesus, though, before whom we will give an account. And so if we do not have a relationship with Jesus, the fact that He is alive is actually a warning now to us because this living Jesus is returning. He's going to reign and He's, and he's going to judge. At the judgment, it's the living Jesus before whom you will give an account. He has shown you that He's alive. He's told you what that means for you. And so friends, either you embrace His love that He's shown you on the cross, or face His wrath that His holy character requires in judgment of sin. And God in His mercy and His grace on this Easter reaches out to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's died for you. He's done the work. You but receive it with the empty hands of faith. The only thing you bring to your salvation is your sin. So we're going to bow in just a moment. And when we do, you say from your heart to God, in your own words, there's no magic formula. Realizing that you're a sinner and recognizing that Christ died for your sin, repenting of your sin, it means you say something like, Lord, I recognize that I have no relationship with you because I'm a sinner. And I know that the only way I can have that relationship is through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. I ask you to forgive me. That repent piece means, Lord, I give you my life. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And so you say, Lord, I'm going to follow you as best I learn how and know how. And then you're saved, then you're delivered, then you are rescued. The resurrection, here's your take-home truth, authenticates who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Let's bow thanking Jesus for what He's done for us, and let's bow with some who have never come to a relationship with the Lord Jesus asking Him to be your Savior and Lord. Our Father, we thank You again for the blessing of this day and what it represents. We thank You that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. In His life, He lived the life that we were to live. In His death, He died the death that we deserved. But He achieved perfect righteousness that we were made to have. He paid the penalty for our sin, for our failure not to live those righteous lives. He did all that is necessary, and He offers that to us freely by Your grace. And so I thank You for the radical change that You made in me at age 19 and my status before You, going from one outside of Your family to one adopted into your family only because of the Lord Jesus and receiving what He has done for me. Lord, we pray that on this Easter, 
you would mercifully move on the hearts of some in this room to cause them to accept what you have presented to them as a proof of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done and embrace and have accounted to them what it is the resurrection proves. Lord, we will give you the praise and the honor for what you accomplish in the lives of those that you bring to yourself on this Resurrection Sunday. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And we're going to stand in just a moment for a closing song, but just before we do, I have a couple who is going to join us in membership that I want to present to you. So Joe and Marie, if you guys will come on up. And this is Joe and Marie Coppola. And Joe and Marie started attending CBC kind of right before the, or shortly before the uh, pandemic. And so then there were some shutdowns and all the irregularities of schedule and all of that. But they have they've been coming and checking us out thoroughly since. And they have taken our newcomers orientation and they have signed our membership covenant, filled out our membership application. We met with them. We're uh, comfortable with their testimonies of salvation and of baptism. They've gone through the entire gauntlet that we make you go through in order to join our church. And so we are happy to present them on this Easter Sunday for membership. All of our church members, then I ask you, all in favor of receiving Joe and Marie into the membership of our church, signify by saying amen. 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 And any opposed? Well, this is a blessed thing. Who said no? Did somebody say no? You, got, you guys got enemies here? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know about it. Okay. Well, nobody's owning up to it, so, so we're going to let you guys in on a technicality then. No, we're, we're thrilled to have you and thrilled to have you guys join us on Easter Sunday of all days. Let's now stand for our closing song. Thanks, guys. Cry! 
raised him from the grave now works in us to powerfully save he frees our hearts to live his grace go tell of his goodness christ is risen he is risen indeed oh sing hallelujah join the chorus sing with the redeemed Christ is risen, He's risen Christ indeed. Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. He is risen, He's alive, He's alive. Heaven's gates are open. service. Amazing singing this morning. We're so thankful that you all have joined us this morning. We look forward to worshiping together next Lord's Day. Uh, we'll continue worshiping our risen Savior. Have a great week serving.